My name is Dan. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace Fellowship, and it's a privilege to continue through the book of Mark with you. And I I read that Advent reading, but I didn't pick it out. But um, boy, was that timely, because we're going to talk about sheep and shepherds today. First, one sheep walked over to the edge of the cliff, slipped, and fell. And then, Turkish shepherds, who had left their flock for just a few minutes to have breakfast one morning, watched as nearly 1,500 other sheep followed. Each of them leaping off the same edge of the cliff. They just thought it was the thing to do, I guess. In the end, 450 animals lay one on top of the other in a big fluffy white pile. And uh, the sheep who jumped last, uh, the thousand that jumped after, were unharmed because the pile got high and the fall more cushioned. What's the point of this true story? Because that's true. Sheep really need shepherds. Do not stop for breakfast, shepherds. And I say this because as you read through the entire Bible, especially Mark, which we're studying, you have seen two big things, and you may not have noticed them, but I'm going to point them out first, is that people are like sheep. There are tons of them, and they are very needy. And here's the second thing, though, and it's surprising. God is committed to helping them. And so being one with God, we see this in Jesus as well. We've seen it all throughout the book of Mark. Lots of people need help. Jesus helps lots of people. I mean, just look at Jesus' workload in Mark so far. I'm just going to walk you through what kind of a workload this guy is taking on. Jesus' very first break happens back in chapter 1, verse 35. He's gone to a remote place where people are not, and his friends find him, and they say, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus gets up, and he says, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That's his first break, after a huge wave of ministry. Then look what happens. Chapter 2, verse 1. He goes home, people crowd his house. Chapter 3. He works on the Sabbath, Serving people, which goes against the culture, he actually leans into this work. It's not just that people are hunting him down when he's trying to take a break. When he's healthy or when he's not, he's leaning into the work. Continue in chapter 3. He and the disciples actually have to escape on a boat so as to avoid being crushed by people who need their help. Later on in chapter 3, he goes home again and people are so demanding that he can't even eat food. You're a mom, you know what I'm talking about. You, get, you can't even pick the sandwich up because there's a toddler like hanging on your wrist. Chapter 5, he parts his boat and as he does that, as he's leaving a huge crowd of people, he's welcomed by a crazy person, Legion. You guys remember that guy? One person, but he has the craziness that multitudes of people can't restrain him. 
Later on in chapter 5, again, he parks his boat elsewhere, and he leaves a crowd, and he gets onto the shore, and another crowd is there. Chapter 6, he finally, ironically, reaches his hometown. They reject him. They're the ones who want nothing to do with him. You know, go work somewhere else. And so what does he do? He trains up his disciples and sends them out to more people. It's like he likes it. And so as we continue the story in today, it's, we're in chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 30. We're going to see Jesus continue to train his disciples. But here's the crazy thing. They're like sheep because he's training them, and they're just consistently not getting it. Why does he include them in the work? Why he does this is the main point of the entire sermon, and here it is. Jesus is committed to saving and serving unworthy people. He's committed to saving and serving unworthy people. He's a shepherd giving everything for his sheep. He's not taking a breakfast break. And so let's look at those two aspects of Jesus today. We're going to look at serving and saving. Serving is your first point, and it's going to cover verses 30 through 44 of Mark chapter 6. Let me read for us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, for he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their own foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, that is Jesus, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send the people away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And he said to them, or they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So I've already walked you through and caught you up in the book of Mark. Now here, Jesus had sent his disciples out on that first short-term mission trip, and they're coming back. And they're excited, we have read, because they are telling him everything. And we've already read earlier in the chapter that they had great success in what they did. And so, tired, Probably. Excited? Yes. What does Jesus say to them? Go rest. He has to tell them to do that. And to the surprise of no one, in verse 33, here comes another crowd while they're trying to take a break. But here's the thing. This is a way different scenario 
than what the disciples just came from. You guys are familiar with the way in which Jesus sent them to serve. Do you remember? They were going house to house, and they're ministering to people one family at a time. You go in, share Jesus, you stay for a while, or they kick you out, you go to the next one, one at a time. Now people are swarming them, and they're in the middle of nowhere. Very different scenario. And the same is true for Jesus in verse 34. He comes ashore, and he sees another great crowd, to which many of us would probably just stay in the boat. But look at Jesus as we complete the verse. Verse 34. He sees a great crowd, look at it, and he has compassion. Not Jesus saw them, rolled his eyes a little bit, and served anyway. Not Jesus sighed and prayed about it and reluctantly helped. Jesus sees people and he sees them as sheep who need a shepherd. And then what happens? Compassion comes out of them. He sees people and compassion comes out of them, out of him in the form of action. In this case, teaching. Now, how are the disciples responding? Because with Jesus, it's quite clear with the disciples, we have to dig a little bit. Because they reconnect with Jesus in verse 36, and it's now late. So in other words, they went off to take a break, probably eat those, those five loaves and that two fish, and they get jumped by people, people out running them in sandals. Right? And they don't take that break, obviously, because they still have the fish, they still have the bread. They come back to Jesus, and they say, we're in the middle of nowhere, send the people away to buy bread. Now, if their response seems a little angry to you, because I think when I first read it, that's how I'd probably interpret it, because I probably wouldn't want anything to do with that kind of workload. Um, again, I want you to consider where they've just been. Remember the missions trip they just got back from. They were working hard, and they were doing very, very, very well. So they're just coming, they just come back from helping a lot of people, and now what has happened? There are too many people to help. You have drowned in the thing that just made you excited. The sheep are just piling up, in other words. And you know, if you look at the text, Jesus kind of seems like a bad shepherd here, doesn't he? I mean, look, he sent them the rest, didn't he? And it's not working, and he doesn't look like he wants to bail them out at all. Look at what he says to them in response to their suggestion to send the people away. You give them something to eat. Now, I don't think this is equivalent to uh, one spouse in the middle of the night as the baby's crying, leaning over to the other spouse and saying, it's your turn. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is part of their training. Jesus is setting them up. He knows they don't have the resources. There are 5,000 people here. You had women and children. We've got at least twice that. You take minimum wage and you try to feed that many people and do the math and we're talking about $11,000 for one meal for a bunch of people who just jumped you on your way to the break room. 
And I give you all that context to lead you to this point. The disciples have been put in a position where they cannot win. And so they do what you and I would do. They give up. Why do they do that? Why do we do that? Well, I think as you see the disciples' response, I think it's because they aren't really being motivated by their mission to serve. They're being motivated by their ability to serve. Because that ability has been taken away from them, and they roll over. Right? Now what Mark is doing here, I think, is I don't think he's just setting up a neat little story where people get free food. Because that's kind of how I took it in Sunday school. Right? You guys take that in Sunday school that way? I think he's connecting us all the way back to a bigger story. Because this story should sound pretty familiar if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Exodus. In fact, we saw strong parallels last week. Peter walked us through between the previous portion of this chapter of Mark and the Passover story in Exodus. The point last week was that the life of a Christian comes with the expectation of much hardship. That was what we saw in the Passover in Exodus. That's what we saw in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And you know what? The parallels continue this week. We're still in the book of Exodus. Because you see, after the Passover and Exodus, what happened? You guys remember? Israel gets led out of Egypt by Moses, and God puts them in an impossible situation. An Egyptian mob was on one side of Israel, water was on the other, and God's people had no way out. Doesn't that sound like what's happening here in Mark? The disciples can't do it. But just like in Exodus, here in Mark, God walks with his people. In fact, now he's standing right in front of them. So look at what Jesus does in verse 38. Just like God provoking people to see their impossible need, which is kind of the point of the Old Testament. Jesus then asks for the food that the disciples have not gotten to eat yet. A small amount, I think, even for them. And Jesus says, go and see. Show me how weak you are. And then, I think as their hearts have probably completely sunk, Jesus provides a way out. He sits the people down in groups. And he prays, and he passes this little bit of food out. And there's more than enough. God's people had no way out, so God himself provided the way out. The God of Exodus, Mark says, loudly, is here. Now, there are so many connections to the Old Testament here, but I'll add on two more. First thing, Jesus provided bread for needy people. God did that literally for Israel in the desert in the same book of Exodus. The people did not deserve it. He just had compassion on them. And secondly, I love this one. Jesus, when he sits them down, he sits them down in groups of 50 and 100. That's how Israel gathered their armies. Did you know that? Jesus, I think, is gathering his army of sheep. This includes women and children. 
And that's how the world would later be changed. Through sheep. Whose only hope is Jesus. So as you read this story, you see one thing huge. This is not a humanitarian effort. This is not how we solve the world's hunger problems. It's so much bigger. This is God revealing himself to his people. This is the shepherd feeding his flock. Jesus, who who has himself been denied rest and denied food, gives bountifully to other people who do not deserve it, all of whom would later abandon him at the cross. He takes the role of a servant, setting himself beneath the very people that he made. That's God. Happy to serve. But you know what? God's a lot more than that. With that in mind, let's look at his majesty revealed. So we see Jesus serve beneath us. Let's watch him save from above us. We'll continue in Mark chapter 6. Immediately after this, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. So finally, Jesus dismisses the crowd. Isn't that kind of funny? Finally, he gets them to leave. And the the text doesn't really say how. It just says dismissed. I wonder how he did that. Because if somebody, if I was chasing somebody and they gave me a free meal, I would probably chase them more. But Jesus dismisses them in a way that they leave. I wonder what that looked like. But moving on. <laughs> then he sends his disciples away. And they finally get that rest. And he goes out to pray. And it's not really a quiet, restful time, is it? It's not a cup of coffee and a devotional Worship music softly playing in the background. Now the disciples are on a boat and a storm comes and they might die. And Jesus looks up and sees them from where he is on land. And so what does Jesus do is he goes, he gets up, he goes all the way down and he walks across the water and he says who he is and he gets into the boat and the storm stops. And there is a huge, huge point hiding in here. Well, first, I want you to consider the situation and how strange it is, considering what we read in chapter 4. Let me explain. Jesus is tired, right? He wants that break, right? Why does he walk down the mountain? He didn't have to do that. Why didn't he just tell the storm clouds to knock it off? He did that in chapter 4. He just looks up, looks out, and says, stop it, and they do. He was praying up on a mountain. He could have stopped praying for a moment. He might not have even had to do that. He could have just looked up, looked over, storm stops, looks back, looks 
continues, getting that rest. Why does he walk down the mountain? Why does he walk across the water? Jesus doesn't need to do these things. He just divided bread. He doesn't need to do this stuff. This explanation is going to take a few minutes, but I promise you it will benefit you greatly to understand this. Let's go back to that bit of text hiding in there that I said is huge. It's actually at the end of verse 48. As Jesus is walking on the water, look at verse 48. The text says, Jesus meant to pass by them. Why is that there? Why would he go all the way down the mountain and across the water and not mean to walk directly to his disciples? I guess because we're still not done in the book of Exodus. After Israel was saved from that impossible situation I told you about, after coming out out of Egypt, God comes down and shows himself to Israel's leader, Moses. And how did he do that? He passed by him. You guys remember that? But what happened in that story is God comes down in a way that Moses can see him, but God is so holy that Moses back in Exodus, had to cover his face and hide and look at like the back corner of Jesus so the very sight of God would not destroy him. And even then, he only saw the back of God, like I said, and yet Moses' face when this was all done shone like the sun. He did not die, he lived. And so here in Mark, we actually see that, and we actually see more than that. Because here in the middle of a terrible storm, Jesus comes to his disciples, but he does not simply pass by as God did. Jesus hears the cry of his people, and he turns to them fully and comes to them. But he has taken the form of a man, a simple man, and so his disciples do not die from seeing the face of God. This is majesty and humility working perfectly together. And let's just kind of pause and digest this for another minute. God is the only thing in the universe worthy of fear, right? And yet, all throughout the Old Testament, the most common command from God is do not fear. And he says it again here. Take heart, it is I, do not fear. Isn't that amazing? And so here, Jesus, representing God Almighty, has taken the humble form of a man and told his disciples to not be afraid. And he steps into the boat, and the storm stops. And their response should be to take a deep breath and worship Jesus for all that he does. But yet, they do not get it. They still don't get it. Verse 51 and 52. Their response, to be honest, is kind of pathetic. The storm is more obedient than they are. Jesus tells the storm to stop and it does. Jesus tells them to not be afraid. They're terrified. They are less obedient than the storm is. They're astounded and they're fearful. And why, we see, is because they still don't get it. They don't understand the miracles. They don't see Jesus as God in the flesh. They don't know what to think. 
even though Jesus has trained them and displayed breathtaking power, and he's given them power and sent them out. They've seen it. They've used it with their own fingers. And Jesus has spoken plainly, and he stopped storms, and he's fed thousands, and yet his disciples are still sheep heading right over the cliff. And you know, really, I don't think because of this that the miracle is the bread, the fish, and the storm. I don't think that's the miracle. I think the miracle is that Jesus would even do a miracle. The miracle is that Jesus left heaven to spend time with sheep who do not know his voice. Why is Jesus so faithful? Why does he spend so much time with these guys? Why does he care for us? Because we are his sheep. That's it. That's all we're bringing to the table is we're sheep. And you know what? Jesus' faithfulness is actually going to continue well beyond this story. The training is going to continue for his disciples, and sometimes it's going to be pretty painful as we keep reading. But this great story that Jesus is revealing to them doesn't just point back to the Old Testament. This points ahead to the cross right here. Because at the cross, Jesus served you, and he saved you, and he supplied the food. He was the food. Why? Because Jesus is committed to serving and saving unworthy people, because he is worthy. He is your shepherd. He does not take breaks. So how do we respond to seeing who Jesus really is? How do we respond to this? I've got three applications for you, and one is for your head, and one is for your heart, and one is for your hands, or, well, probably your feet, too. Application number one is for your head. It's, this is how this changes what we believe, because that runs everything, Right? What you feel does not run everything. What you believe runs things. Runs how you feel and how you act. Here's your first application for your head. Jesus is committed to you. That's the belief that has to change. How often do you waste hours believing that your salvation hangs by the thread of how you feel or what's happening in your life? How often does your salvation in your own mind just dangle, break off, maybe get taped back up? If you do this, if that's how you operate, it's not ultimately because you're not working hard enough for God or that you need to feel different towards God. It's because your belief is not in Jesus. It's in you. Now, of course, only God can change your beliefs. But the most practical way you can help to change your beliefs is this. Here's how you begin to work to change your own beliefs. Read your Bible and pray for Jesus to help you understand it. 
That, I think, is the most practical thing you can do. Just look at it. Look at the need of people throughout history as you open your Bible up. Look at Exodus. Read it again. you got time this afternoon, right? It's not that long. Look even past, look even earlier than that. Think about passages. Write down Psalm 139 and read that when you get home. The Lord knew you before your birth. Consider the present reality. Consider right now. Jesus died for you, and his spirit is working in you right now. You're not alone. He's the shepherd working in you still right now. Consider the future, being with Jesus forever. Because when you do that, your mind gets off this next thing that you have to do, or this thing that you think is such a big deal, and it gets your mind on the greater reality of God, who is way bigger than you. And that's good. And so when your beliefs change, guess what happens next? Application number two. Your heart, your feelings, your desires, they begin to change. There's two applications um, here, I think. There's probably more. First application for your heart is delight in God. Delight in God. Because as you seek his word, as you begin to fight and claw to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, meditating on amazing truth in the Bible throughout all of eternity, your feelings will begin to change. Now that's kind of not cool to say in this culture, right? Don't we usually treat feelings like they just kind of knock us around? You know, like, oh, I just got mad, so I punched that guy, right? We kind of view it as like we're victims of our own feelings. Your feelings can actually change. They will actually change as your belief in who God is changes. But here's the thing. Give that time. Give that time. And so you delight in God. And how you do that in one way is delighting in his word. So you're delighting in his word. But the second application, as you delight in God by delighting in his word, is you then delight in holiness. Delight in holiness. And all I mean by holiness, if you're a guest here, and that seems kind of like vague and fluffy, is that you delight in living like Jesus lived. That's holiness. You delight in having your life look like Jesus' life, which, as we read today, is kind of hard. You delight in that. You run into that. And again, it's a process, just like delighting in God's word. Here's what happens. God changes your beliefs, application one. You develop love for him and his word. And then becoming more like Jesus actually becomes your passion. Here's the thing, though. This is not a smooth ride. Right? Because let's take Jesus, for example. Before his death, he did not want to die. His feelings were not, hey, that'd be great. Jesus, his feelings were not like that. They were not totally jazzed about going to the cross. But here's the thing. What caused Jesus to obey? He believed God, and so his affections for his father drove him to obey and walk right ahead to the cross. So it's not that he just like ignored his feelings. His feelings, his affections were for doing what his father wanted. He 
had a greater affection. So in other words, he believed God, his affections for his father drives him to obey, and so he walks to the cross. He obeys, he gets up, and he serves people, even though he's in the middle of nowhere and people have hunted him down. He serves because he believes God is who God says he is. And so then, when your affections change, after your beliefs change, last application is for your hands and, and your feet. Work like Jesus. Now, a lot can be said here, because there's a lot of work to do. But let's just stick to the main point. When you're motivated by your mission to serve and not your ability to serve, you know, you're motivated by who God is, not how you feel, you can flourish anywhere. That's one way. I mean, I've, we've said that a bunch of times here. Like, as an example, let's consider church. Let's just use church as an example. You're reading a great book called How to Work, How to Walk in the Church. It's great. Go, go get it. It's like, just thin. You can read it like right after Exodus this afternoon. Okay, you walk into church, you enter. What do you normally do? Okay, I'm going to pick my seat, I'm going to get my coffee, right? When you enter, pray. God, where do you want me to sit today? Don't get freaked out by that. Just, you know, maybe consider not sitting in the same seat every week. So you walk in, you pray. When you're in, you see a bunch of you guys that just sat in the same seat, you're like, <laughs> feel that? It's cool. Um, when you're in church, what does it look like to walk into church believing God is who he says he is? It means you sing loudly. It means you pray with people. You go over to, you walk over and you start talking to somebody. Maybe you're not a small talk person. That's okay. You start talking to them and say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? People will talk when you ask them that question, I think. You participate in church. You come in. You look around and you say, oh, man, you know, like, I'm going to help, like, set up chairs because, well, we need to do that. Oh, man, like, who's going to hand out outlines? All right, I'm going to be that guy. Oh, man, we're out of coffee. I'm going to help. And then as you're leaving church, working like Jesus means you're, you're making plans to just not let it just die here when you walk out. It means you're, like, talking to people. You see me personally, like, hey, you want to come over for lunch? Talking to a student. Hey, want to come over later this week? You talk to your girlfriend, hey, you want to come to my growth group? Let me just bring all these things in with, with, the, with the point. The point in when you do all those things is this. It's not about me. Church is not about you. So when you walk in and you pray and you sing loudly and you help and you serve and you invite people to your house for food and you invite people to growth group, all you're saying is, it is not about me. And that's how Jesus lived. Because here's why. Church is not a humanitarian organization. Have you seen that sometimes when you walk in? It's not. Church is God saving and serving the world through you. That's church. And one huge reminder as we kind of wrap up these applications. Application number two and number three only work if number one is working. Let me walk you through that. If you place your hope in how you feel without knowing who Jesus is, you are going to go through life very disappointed, which is kind of ironic. 
And if you try to work like Jesus without actually having affection for him or believing he is who he says he is, you're only going to be able to fake it until somebody asks you to do work that you don't want to do. Then you're just going to start to crack. In other words, your emotions and your actions, when they point back to Jesus, it does not come tumbling down. You actually become like a rock. You actually become somebody who can go out into the community, serve people here, serve people there. And God won't be fooled because some people, you can go through your entire life just looking like a happy servant and you're just muttering your whole way home in the car and nobody knows it. You might fool us. God's not fooled. God doesn't take breakfast breaks. You're not going to fool him. But here's the reality, though, because you either fail at these applications on your way here, you're failing now, or you're going to fail when you get home. And I say that because I love you. You're going to fail at these. This is hard stuff. This application is an impossible mission without Jesus's continued help. Without the Holy Spirit working in you, you do not have hope. You really are that needy. But here's the thing. Jesus is your shepherd committed all the way to your death. He is already committed to helping you. It will work out in the end. That's the hope. Even in the midst of your failure, God is pushing you forward. And you can repent and you can turn. Believe God is who he says he is. Watch your feelings change. Work for Jesus. He is your hope, and he's committed all the way to the end because he was committed all the way to the cross, so we can be too, even to our death. Here's the point. Jesus is your good shepherd. His joy was to serve the Father, and so our privilege is to do the same. Let's pray. God, it is so hard for me to remember what church is because I get done with my week and I'm tired and life's hard and I get here and I just kind of want to sit down and soak. Lord, that's not your design for the church. Because you know what? You were in perfect community in heaven, which is far better than anything you could experience here, and you joyfully gave that up. Why? so that your sheep would come home. They would come back into the fold with you. Lord, and so you came down after us. You came down willingly. Even when your feelings did not seem to line up, your beliefs, your faithfulness to the Father were always true all the time, and so your work flourished. Lord, would you help us to do the same as we walk through life together? Would you help us to serve one another? As we walk in here, would you help us to pray that it's not about us? Would you help us to feel and have affection that it is not about us and that's great? And would you help us to leave here remembering that it is not about us, it's about you? Amen.